Hello, and welcome to another episode of This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoopel. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Crime Lab at the Hoople Department of Public Safety, here in the Hoople Municipal Building, in the heart of beautiful downtown Hoople. Today we're talking about new research that is analyzing fingerprints lifted from pottery sherds, left by potters when the clay was still wet. At Byzantine Moza, west of Jerusalem, and at 4th and 3rd millennium BCE sites around the Near East, Researchers are lifting fingerprints and building the case for the individual in archaeology. But what do you do with all these hundreds of fingerprints? Distinguishing men, women, and children is one thing, but do the real insights come from using these data to understand ancient economies? For example, what can fingerprints tell us about the manufacture of pottery? When are men making pottery as opposed to women, and why are kids involved at all? Haven't they heard about child labor laws? Could the fingerprints track the movements of those shifty itinerant potters? What about professional potters? Were there even professionals? Or was making pottery really just a kind of side hustle in antiquity? All we can say is be on the lookout for mad clay skills. Okay, so here's the lightning round. It's, it's actually very, it's very direct. It's not indirect or oblique in, in any way. Um, have uh, ha- have either of you ever been fr- fingerprinted, and if so, for what reason? <laughs> well, I I had to get fingerprinted for um, not TSA PreCheck or maybe TSA PreCheck, but also the other one, the Global Entry. Mm-hmm. Ah. yeah. Somebody was telling us about Global Entry the other night. I got to look into that. Oh, Global Entry is great. Hmm. Um, but I also remember going to. Um. FBI headquarters as a kid, you know, on yeah. some kind of tour. Hmm. And yeah. I think they fingerprint you there. Oh, okay. As a, you know, for kids. save it? What? Do they save it? All these school kids coming well, through? I'm sure they do. But I mean, at that point, it was just like, oh, cool. Right. Right. <laughs> I have some vague recollection of that. Okay. Well, my answer is easy. No, never. Wow. Mm. Yeah. You're, you're, you're out of the system. Yeah, I did uh, TSA pre, but my daughter actually, she worked in a camp, um, the end of high school, beginning of college or something. And she had a adoption agency. Oh, right, right, right. Adoption agency in the city. And I had to take her to Newark to some, you know, remote office in Newark to get fingerprinted so she could be in the system in in New Jersey and hmm. um yeah so so she's in the system there's no anonymity anymore what about you though just tsa pre 
Mm. It still counts. You're in the system. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, whatever else has been lifted off of various surfaces by agencies. Although I try and fly under the radar as usual, mm. but, um, but I guess, I, I guess uh, this week uh, we've proven that you can never fly under the radar. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands of years later, you're still on the radar. That's true. That's and, right. And uh, where everybody knows your name. Well, if they don't know your name, well, they, can, <laughs> they can at least, you know, if they don't have your mug, they've got your, they've got your fingerprints. I thought this was a really cool thing because I really hadn't given it much serious thought. Well, you love the, you love the recovery of the individual. I do. I and really the, do. This is all about the individual and archaeology. Right. Exactly. Well, do you want? Does someone want to introduce it so we're not just <laughs> yammering into cyberspace, right? Obliquely talking about some right. topic which no one knows what it is. I'll, I'll I'll start introducing it, and then you guys can continue because you can lift, and people have been lifting or fingerprints or finding fingerprints on various uh, pieces of pottery, which were you know made by human hands. So it's not surprising to find fingerprints on them. Um, so there's been a bunch of studies done, one recent study done uh, on these fingerprints, and they're able to identify individuals. And then once you can identify individuals, you can use that for all sorts of interesting things. So I'll start with that and somebody else can continue. Right. Well, it's it's all what, what struck me is that, um, for, first of all, anyone who's ever played with Play-Doh right. or, or with clay... Um, <clears throat> is in the system so to speak and 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 it's not surprising then that gosh it must it's a hundred years ago that that archaeologists started noticing this and playing around with this so iron age tell in Natsba, northeast of jerusalem good old frederick Badet picked up pottery saw fingerprints didn't quite know what to do with it all but has a huge file right. he's got the files Right. And, and he wrote a little article back in the 30s. Right. About fingerprinting and and archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. And that so that was pretty cool that that early he he thought about it and um figured out also one of the coolest things that I thought from from everything that we read is that um you know, if you find a pot with a fingerprint that in a, in a dated context, and then you find that same fingerprint on something maybe undated or less securely dated, you know, it's the same person. So, you know, it's the same date. Right. Or of, of its manufacture, not necessarily of its last use. Right. Very good point. Right. 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 And also in doing this reading, it seems like there's been quite a few fingerprint studies since the thirties, since yeah. by then. You know, right, like, in all and, sorts of different periods and right. places. Exactly. Yeah. And so so I so we we knew about Badet. I remember having discussions about like we should do this, Alex, on early Bronze Age pottery. Of course, we never we never did. Oh, you totally should have. Yeah, I know. We talked about it. But what I didn't realize is that Paul Ostrom was doing this in the 60s in Cyprus. And right. I don't remember ever reading about about any of that kind of stuff. Um but it but it's been it's been done like every 20 or 30 years and right. now of course right. it's being done in a much more systematic way with much uh higher level of technology this automated 
fingerprint identification system, which right. uh, undoubtedly makes it much easier to do. Um, and I guess it can sort of become routine if you find a lot of shirts with fingerprints on them. Yeah. Right. So at Byzantine Moza, west of Jerusalem, they called in the forensic examiner from the uh, from the police department, and I don't know how many individuals were were identified. Um, like a whole bunch, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and there there are studies from from early Bronze Age Hama in Syria and early Bronze Age Tel Asafi in in Israel. And I guess um, Tel Elan, because they were and, and Hama. And lots of New World studies. Right. And lots of New World studies. So what yes. do we do with all this? <laughs> we build we build up a comprehensive file of, of potters. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. We put the be on the lookout for these guys right. and gals. And, and gals. Kids. Well, that's so that's the right. So the, that's what the, are the results of this? of this. What are the real right. <laughs> the so, tangible results? So first of all, one one piece of the results, but I think you know this is something maybe I should have known about fingerprints is that you can tell male fingerprints from female figure, fingerprints and also children's fingerprints, which I'd never really thought of. I'd only thought about identifying the individual as opposed to dividing them up. So so that's cool. <laughs> right. So one of the things is the whole issue, and this came out in the study of the Hama pottery. Um, the whole issue of who's manufacturing pot pottery and what kinds of social contexts. Yeah. And very, very preliminary. It wasn't a lot of samples. The sample size from the Hama uh, investigation was pretty small, but yeah. uh, it begins to indicate that prior to the period of urbanization, it was being done, I guess also at Tel Elan, it was being done primarily by men or primarily by adult men and women. And then right. with urbanization, it shifts into a, adult male kind of um, industry. Right. And then there's some sense that maybe younger adult males are participating, suggesting an apprentice, a degree of, of professionality in terms of apprentice uh, training. Right. And then the most interesting thing from my perspective is that figurines uh, in various contexts, new and old world figurines, seem to be made by uh, or can't often are made by children whereas pottery is made by adults yeah i had some issues with the figurines i was thinking about the the figurines um right because it's a if that holds it's a very you know it's a very potent piece of data to um sort of sort of undermine the rarefied um <laughs> exclusive you know, notion of what these figurines were doing. So Rachel, I, I, I'm not surprised you have some thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think I mainly um, disagreed with something I read in one of these articles that we were looking at um, where the figurines were thought maybe they were made for the quote, enjoyment of the figurines own producers, um, or it could be early in the apprenticeship toys to help children hone their craft. But I didn't like any of that, honestly, um, because I actually think that that sculpting is an entirely different thing than potting. And you're not um, you're not if you're going to be apprenticed as a potter, you're not making figurines. That's not going to teach you anything. Um, so mm. so that was one issue that I had with that. Um, 
I mean, there are other ways we can analyze the figurines and maybe we should, but um, but they're different. They're different forms of- How about uh, the difference between handmade figurines and mold-made figurines? Right, I was gonna say. Yeah. Right. Well, that's right, right. I think they were talking about handmade ones here though, but- Right, but they were talking about mold-made pots. And I, what was interesting, again, once you sort of start, you know, peeling these onions, you just learn more and more. So in the case of mold-made pots, they were finding a lot of evidence of the use of right and left thumbs, which of course makes perfect sense. Right, you're pushing. pressing into, right. Yeah. Um, and so conceivably those, maybe there's some kind of, you know, um, motor skill, speci specific kind of motor skills used in, ma in making uh, handmade versus mold made figurines, which might indicate the degree of ad hoc nature of the figurine or the more sort of, you know, professional role that the figurine might have and, and its function. Um, so you begin to get real insights into the industry and also maybe then into the function because we don't, you know, we say a lot of things about figurines, but we don't really know the function of these things. Right, right. Um, and they probably all had multiple functions, you know, over time. Yeah. And we say a lot of things about about craft production, about <clears throat> how in one, you know, period when there's, you know, some sort of larger socioeconomic conditions like pre-urbanization, you know, village level craft production is organized this way. And, and urban level, urban era craft production is organized in, in different ways. When I... I've always thought it's related to, um, you know, scale um, more than anything else. And, um, and that lots of different levels of production or types of production are going on at all in, in all different, uh, in all different periods, because, you know, we know that household production goes on in every period, in every, in every place, but it's, it mm. may be limited to particular kinds of vessels or, or or products and sweeping evolutionary statements about you get this in one this in this kind of period not in the other kind of period always struck me as a little bit sweeping so right but one 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 thing, on? <laughs> one thing that was interesting though was in the the syrian study you know you've got these two sites Elan and Hama, which are in very different parts of syria and they showed the same pattern of JP, as you said before, um, in in pre-urban phases, it was men and women, and then later on, it was it was only men. Um, so that was interesting that there does seem to be this sort of larger pattern. Sexual division of labor, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, it has to do with again the issue of scale and the issue of professionalization of the industry. Right. That's the interesting thing: professionalization. Right. And when I say professionalization, I'm I mean just that it's being segregated to one gender and you know it's being scaled up in in size vision of labor just right yeah. right but in all of these in all of these periods um you know bronze age and, and and iron age in the near east at least do you really think that they were full-time potters who who just made pots all year round or um, was that just something that they they had a specialism in 
and <laughs> and did um specialism <laughs> specialism <laughs> it's actually it's actually a word um that that they did um you know for some some part of the time and the reason i asked this is i i wrote a thing a couple of years ago about early bronze age platter bowls yeah and i forget <laughs> i forget how i came to this conclusion but i did some kind of back of the envelope um calculation that if platter bowls are whatever you know four to 14 percent of of all these assemblages and you have hundreds and hundreds of platter bowls per site all of these could have been made by like four guys in six weeks right and and that we what you did not need was you know platter bowls specialists who did this kind of stuff year round you had like a a couple of people who could have provided for the entirety of the Southern Levant in a very small amount of time. Now, obviously that's kind of an exaggeration. Right. And but... also platter bowls are distinctive because they're mold made. Right. Well, and th that was, it's that was exactly the, scale. that's exactly the point. So it's, it's a little bit of a less skill at a certain right. level. Exactly. You don't have to really be good at it. You just have to be trained to take it out of the mold without breaking it. And, oh, right. I, don't, I don't think we want to be hitting on hitting on the skill level of early Bronze Age platter bowl makers. Well, um, I have two but, things to say. No, but the, the point being that here's a, here's a very distinctive form that we invest a lot of time and energy in <clears throat> with regard to its significance in terms of chronology, in terms of of social organization, uh, and, you know, uh, economic organization, and chances are it was made by a couple of, by a couple of guys. Um, so, right. So, so that's actually really interesting in light of the the fingerprints because we do talk in archaeology sometimes about itinerant potters, right? Sure. So, so you know, you go from one place, you make a whole bunch of pots. You go to the next place, you make a whole bunch more pots. Um, so, the fingerprints could theoretically help you find out if that's really what's going on. Right. Um, because and for periods like the EB4, where we know populations are, you know, a little bit more mobile, or at least some parts of the population, that would be really um, interesting to see. Right, right. right. The, on the only problem with that theory, though, or that possibility is, you know, professional potters are going to be except for certain shapes, but basically they're going to be very careful because they're professionals. They're not going to, they're going to smooth <laughs> away their fingerprints as much as they possibly can. Well, right. that's, well, see, but well, that's an issue. Like, so for platter bowls, that is going to happen, especially when they get slipped and burnished, you're not going to have those. Right. And um, open forms, you're definitely going to be careful about that. Right. Um, but I, but it speaks to this whole notion of what is, what does professional mean <laughs> in, in these this, this brings me to the other thing I wanted to say, but go ahead. No, was anyone a professional in the early Bronze Age? And they they, they all probably had a couple of different, you know, guidelines, right. or as we as we like to, what, what's the term now? Oh, God, it's a really quirky little, I can't think of it, I'll think of it, but. Um, it's a gig. Yeah, side job. Yeah. Yeah, it, I, I do. Oh, side hustle. I do platter bowls as a side hustle. It's a side hustle. <laughs> okay, that's fine. But if we go down to um, the first millennium, and let's say we shift our focus over towards the towards the Mediterranean, especially the Aegean, these people are real professionals. <laughs> in fact, they're 
by by the classical period, they're signing their work. Well, that's right. And I was going to talk. I was going to mention that when we talk about the individual in prehistory or the individual in archaeology, when we get to real stylistic kinds of traditions, these vase painters, even if they don't sign them, based on you know just a stylistic analysis of the painting, you know, it's different different um, auteurs have been identified. Exactly. exactly. I just want to credit real professionalism as opposed to. <laughs> well, well I, I, you know what? I think, I don't know. I think you're who speaks for the potters. There. Rachel does. What, wait, what? Rel- professionalism is relative. Yes, it is. It is. And, and, you know, again, I think we've probably talked about this before. I couldn't, I couldn't weave clothing. Right. Um, <laughs> and I don't think the people who are good at weaving clothing in the bronze age are the same people who are making really, really cool pots. Um, now, have either of you done any potting? I've done a very little bit. Okay. Not, very Not since maybe second grade. <laughs> I, oh. I, 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 t- I topped out at the ashtray level, really. <laughs> Master of the I've, pinch pot. <laughs> I've done some potting. And, You've done some potting. Uh, yeah, I've done a whole bunch of potting. And I'm not very good. But um, what I can tell you is um, that it's not easy. And you have to you have to have a talent for it um, because anybody can learn to center a pot. But it took me like two years to learn to center a pot. And, you know, in antiquity, they would have said two years. You're, you're still learning to center a pot. That's ridiculous. Um, and well, I, you would have started much, much earlier in the Bronze Age. All right. All right. We would have had you out there, you know, finishing some things and moving clay around when you were eight. Um, potting is also something that sometimes requires great strength. Okay. You're using, especially for larger vessels, but even for medium sized vessels, you're using a couple of pounds of clay and um, sometimes many pounds of clay. And you need to be able to maneuver things and lift them and center them. And you need somebody to do the, 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 um, you know, the, the helping of the moving around um, and uh, in a couple of different ways, it's not easy. And to handle the physical at the same time as being able to make it um, shapely or the right the right shape. <laughs> shapely. Yeah, I know. It's shapely. Humbly, it's humbly pottery. Um, this is this is actually not easy, and it takes a lot of talent as well as skill, and those are two different things: talent and skill. So, to you know, people who have both might be the potters. <laughs> Though what we do know from ethnographic studies is that even talented and skilled potters are still at the bottom rung of most societies um, up until the present, but um, the present excluded. Uh, So, you know, there is that element that even if they have, you know, mad clay skills, (laughs) they're still not, you know, highly regarded within the socioeconomic structure of the society itself. Very true. It's like it's like teachers today. Everybody needs teachers. Here but... we go. Wow. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> no, but but in a period when when I live in a region what... where I'm not so sure everybody thinks you need teachers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but in a period like the like the fourth millennium, third millennium, when so much of the of pottery was um handmade or mold made at the what we we think is the household level or made on a tournet which does actually require a lot a lot of skill right because you got to get that thing moving and you gotta you know it's a lot of 
Right. Yeah. A tornado is maybe even can be more challenging than maybe a wheel because it's kind of less stable and formal. Right. 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 And you might need an assistant who really knows how to how to help how with to that. Spin. How to spin yeah. those platters. Right. Exactly. Well, but that's where you have children for. Well, that's what Literally. I wanted to say. So there's one thing I was surprised that even though these are pretty short, brief <clears throat> articles, is that no one brought up ethnoarchaeological studies, which us Arizona people know very well because of the tradition and legacy of, of William Longacre's long career in ethnoarchaeology. And one of the big outcomes of a lot of those studies done way back um, when we were when we were graduate students was that even well-made pots done by professional or semi-professional potters were then decorated by children. Hmm. So you had this weird juxtaposition of pots being very well-made in a kind of a formal process by people who acquired the skill over years. And then they just uh, give them over to children who could do all of the rapid movements and incisions and all of the other kinds of things because of their nimble, small fingers. And so you have that, you know, weird kind of almost, you know, split industry. Yeah. And I was wondering why um, that wasn't at least discussed in all of this as they're trying to figure out, you know, production stages and things like that. Um, why that ethnoarchaeological data wasn't involved in all of that, because that would seem to sort of tie into the issue of professionalization as well as the issue of gender and age. Absolutely. That's that's a really great point. And that also makes me think about whose fingerprints these really are. Are they the children doing the decorating in this case, or are they the potters themselves? And you know what, when you're, when you're making pottery, um, you, you're making it, right? And then you're letting it dry to the leather hard or the green stage, and then you can do the incisions. And when you're lifting it off either the wheel or the base on which it's it's sitting uh, to do the fine work, to do the decorating, you may not be the same person who's done the potting, right? The assistants or the children might be doing the lifting and they're the ones who are more likely to be leaving fingerprints at that stage. And I'm wondering if, well, I mean, I think you probably can tell if a fingerprint was made when it was uh, really wet versus something that had been leather hard that had been slightly softened in order to um, you know, manipulate it. Um, like when you're attaching a handle or something. Um, I also think it'll be, I mean, it'll be in different places. Parts on of the, the right. right. And right. so a, a lot of closed vessels, you have lots of fingerprints on the interior of the neck. Whereas right. when you're moving the pot from leather hard stage, et cetera, you're not going to be putting your hand inside. You're just right. going to be grabbing the base or the lower part. Right, exactly. So in theory, with a large enough sample, we could distinguish who's doing various production phases. The men, I'm imaginary, the men are doing the, the, the initial shaping. The women are lifting it off and doing the final shaping when it's leather hard. The kids are putting the little hatching on or, or finish some other kind of finishing. And they're schlepping it from one part of the facility to another. Um, or one part of the house. Right. Um, but this kind of analysis, I, I think, is a recipe for um, for a graduate student to go insane. 
<laughs> um, you know, here's here's a hundred thousand shirts. We're gonna lock you in this room for five years with a microscope and uh you know, bread and water. Um this is why I was really disappointed by the there was this pilot study about Crete. Did you guys read that article? I briefly read it, yeah. Right. So so um one cemetery site and one settlement site in Crete. And so first of all, um, they found, um, they said one in 500 pieces of pottery had um, fingerprints. And right. um, of those, uh, they only, the cemetery site only yielded 13 usable fingerprints that were in good enough shape that you could photograph them properly. And the other site, the, the settlement site found 17 usable prints, but 10 of them were from the same vessel. And the end result was really disappointing. They found no matches, okay, right. either within the sites or comparing the sites. So that's really disappointing. But it also shows, um, you know, the limits of of this. We don't really have a big database for any given given site. Um, right. I think it's such a cool thing to look at, um, but it's going to be really hard to do a large. Right. I, you know, didn't this Mutsa study say that there were like four hundred fingerprints? Something like that. Two hundred and thirty shirts had finger fingerprints. Right. Okay. Now, one third of the two hundred and thirty shirts. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so not... it's going to be very hard to come up with a a real sample that's that's generalizable. In right. Any, or provide the way. kinds of data that you could infer potters are moving or different segments of the society are doing different aspects of the potting. Right. But on the other hand, you get lucky. Right. And you can come up with these results that the study from the Hama and Lilan pottery came up with. And so it's just going to be, you know, sort of serendipitous, which is a lot of archaeological analysis is. Right. Um, right. Um, and I think that another problem, um, there are a couple of interesting things in this Moza article, because um, they, they found um, they were finding the pottery with the fingerprints um, on fragments of lamps and roof tiles that were in an alcove adjacent to a kiln. Right. Um, and um, at some point they they were saying these are fingerprints of the kiln workers. And I think we gotta be really careful about interpretation because are they the finger, is it the potters who are moving? The potters probably are the same people who are moving the things into the kiln, but there are also people who might be dealing with the firing of the kiln who might be doing the moving. So I'm not sure we're definitely getting the fingerprints of the potters or, or we're- well, it, well, the, for the lamps, I think we are because they were pretty clear that it was the thumbs that were being and the pieces okay. of clay being pressed into the molds. You're right. So You're I think right. That okay. For that one particular example. Right. But so yeah, they shouldn't really be saying kiln workers. They should be saying potters. Yeah. We're we're far we're far from CSI Moza. <laughs> Not quite there yet. But um, right. but but it's you know it's all part of this scientific scientification good one <laughs> of archaeology yeah absolutely uh, right yeah and it, is this going to become part of the standard of uh, the standard toolkit the standard approach you count you measure you weigh you, you typologize you you do you know sourcing you look for fingerprints uh you you do uh, various sorts of chemical analysis residue analysis blah 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 yeah, I don't know. I think I think yes. If you, I mean, if you could, if someone can identify enough fingerprints to make it worthwhile, I don't think too many people count and weigh anymore. 
Right. But that was a fad. Where's the, where's the pity? I mean, you know, I was the big count and weigh guy and I think it's really gone by the wayside unless you have very specific wear, wear types. And then right. you should definitely count and weigh or at least weigh. Yeah. Yeah. Because you get that relative sense of what the assemblage is comprised of. But I think this could be something like, so for instance, the three of us all worked at a particular site where we were trained to look for broken bases that were stoppers that were potentially used as, as stoppers, <laughs> right? So yeah. so that was like, became a thing um, to notice. So I think fingerprints could become a thing to collect and notice and-, and right, You bag them separately. Off. Everybody who washes the pottery bags them separately. Right. Exactly, exactly. They're now you bring in some it. kind of poor nearsighted nerdy graduate student. <laughs> Or soon to be nearsighted, right? Or, or maybe maybe there's a better way that, and I I still think that this is coming someday. That um, you're going to put all of the sherds on a big conveyor belt and slowly wheel them past a, a laser scanner, right. which is connected to a computer with with artificial intelligence of some kind, and it's gonna it's gonna do all of these kinds of or most of these kinds of analyses in one go. Sure. And um, I think this oh, might be, sorry. All we need is a big grant as usual. Right, right. I, I was thinking this could be a great thing for retired forensic specialists who are done with their <laughs> police career um, to have a second career working for archaeologists. Because one thing that the Moza article pointed out is, you know, it takes a lot of time to do this. And they're doing this, the, the forensics team is, is um, doing this in their off time when they're not solving crimes uh, in their off hours. Um, so I think there's a time and, and expense side of this also. Um, but one thing that 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 kind of struck me as odd is I think it was somewhere in the Moza article that they said, maybe it was the forensics people that said that they were surprised that the ancient fingerprints are very similar to modern fingerprints. That yeah, like I didn't I thought that was um, a surprise conclusion. But yeah, exactly. Right. Do people not understand that no major evolutions in, in humankind have taken place in the last couple of thousand years? I don't know. When yeah. did fingerprints uh, evolve? Um, and why? Something mm -hmm. I read said that mice have fingerprints. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know how to process that. <laughs> Would they be paw prints or fingerprints? Uh, okay, paw prints, I guess. Yeah, but, but primates, don't they have fingerprints? They must. Yeah. But why? Why do we have these ridges, these almost totally individualized ridges? Maybe it has <laughs> something to do with... Um, and you know, your hand can't, it can't touch itself. But maybe it has some kind of tactile representation or, you know, function that the tops of the ridges feel different things than... No, I'm sure. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's yeah good. it works with nerves. I mean, stuff. you know, this is the thing. We don't know anything about science. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. We and we'd like articles. to emphasize that to the viewer <laughs> on the advice of our lawyers. To say crazy stuff that may or may not exist in any in any real way. And that's the thing about science. It's, you know, it's like I I like the fact that they they the forensic guys ran the fingerprints against the, <laughs> the national database and came up with no matches. <laughs> right. And obviously they did it kind of for fun, but I was, I was reassured in a way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That was reassuring. Uh -oh. Yeah. Yeah. On the other I hand, also... if they had found matches, then that... you could really get to this whole issue of time travel. Yes. Oh, that's a good point. 
Right. And so then maybe we'd be really onto something. Right. Or if they found matches um, that, uh, you know, show that artifacts have been faked very recently. Oh, wow. That's yeah. really good. No, that is good. All right. So we're giving that one free right. <laughs> to the listener <laughs> who who may or may not have bought some kind of <laughs> fabulous artifact recently. Go fingerprint that. the old city. Yeah, or wherever. Um, you know, do a little due diligence. Oh, but we probably tipped off the faker. Well, well they don't listen. Now they they're going to be extra careful about smoothing out their fingerprints. Right. Can you just <clears throat> or like... they're going to make sure they've never been fingerprinted. Right, right. Right. Well, that's like nobody anymore. Um, <laughs> Me? I've never been fingerprinted. Oh, you. As yeah. I said at the beginning. Right. Yeah, um, but your face is like all over the place with, you know, biometrically. I don't think so. Oh, when was the last time you entered the United States and had to have your picture taken? Uh, oh, I guess so. Hmm. You're in the system. Okay, yeah. good point. That's disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I have to do some kind of Mission Impossible mask thing, but but that's a little far afield from from where where we started today. Right. Well, now I think all the forgers will, you know, if you find a pot that's had absolutely no markings you're going to know it's a forgery because now they're going to be aware that this is a thing right um, well well what else can we say any last thoughts i think this is kind of cool it's another small it, it's a way that um you know scientific data is beginning now again literally after a century to to start to help bring archaeological questions into focus and um with but and then when you start breaking down those archaeological questions like is it a are they are they the kiln workers are they just kids who snuck into the yard and stuck their fingers in the pots while they're drying you know all sorts of new questions get answered so it's yeah. we're down the rabbit hole as usual right. as usual or we like to be. Yeah. Well, I think I think this would all make Jerry Orbach feel very happy. <laughs> it's true. We are on a sort of uh, law and ordery forensic sort of uh, kick these days. That's yeah. true. That's true. We still haven't turned up that sheep and tunic. <laughs> no. No, no. Yeah. Well, maybe it'll come up. We'll, we'll find it. We'll find yeah. it. Be on the lookout. Yeah. Yeah. Any other final thoughts? No, I just like what you said at the beginning. This is, again, the archaeology of the individual. Um, and I, I really like that. Immortality. Well, time travel. Like, it's as if you're looking at looking at somebody, particular person from a long time ago. Or at least their fingerprints. Or at least their fingerprints. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Well, this episode has me carefully wiping my fingerprints from all the surfaces that I touch. In the meantime, though, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Hoople County Ceramic Regulatory Authority, making sure your ceramics are safe and fingerprint-free since 1932. And thus, to get in touch, leave us a comment 
Hit the heart-shaped like button to show that you really are out there liking us. Send us an email at This Week in the Ancient Near East. It's all one word. You know that already. At gmail.com. Or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.